Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, and uh, the show is Stan Teresa, and I am the host. Glad you're with me today. Um, it is not um, very frequently that I get asked a question that I have, have not been asked before. Um, when it happens, it's almost always on STRask, hashtag STRask, and Amy and I are working together. If you don't subscribe to that podcast, uh, you ought to. If you enjoy what I'm doing here for you, this is a whole hour, those are like 22 minutes, and you get Amy in the mix, and that's a definite leg up. But uh, it seems like we get questions in hashtag STRask that, that uh, tend to be more on the unique side, okay? But I was asked a question, um, asked for some advice um, last week, actually from another ministry leader, and she wondered how to manage this issue, and she'd wondered if I'd ever been asked this question before. And the question has to do with um, families— where you have a mother and a father who are Christian, and then, in this particular iteration of the question, the father deconstructs and deconverts and becomes a non-Christian and maybe even becomes an atheist. And there's children that had been being raised uh, in a Christian family. So they have a Christian familial community, they're giving thanks at meals, they're uh, going to church on Sundays and maybe to other Christian events. Uh, Maybe the father and or mother are making uh, regular investments in the spiritual life of the children, and uh, that's all bearing fruit. And, And then something happens. Dad's not so sure. Dad's wondering if Christianity is actually true. Dad is deconstructing, and then Dad deconverts. And the question then is, what now? (laughs) And specifically, especially for Mom, what now for Mom? What does she tell the children? When does she tell the children? Should she tell the children, or should... Daddy tell the children that he doesn't believe in God anymore. And what age is going to be the best time to do that? And and also, if, let's say, Dad is playing along a little bit for the sake of the family, and that for, for good men who have genuine challenges to their confidence in Christianity, they are likely to play along for the sake of the family by maybe going to church regularly or maybe occasionally, by offering a prayer at the meal or at night with the kids, uh, even though they don't actually believe in what they're doing, it, they're doing on behalf of the children. Um, and then will telling the kids about this changed belief cause seeds of doubt in the children? Um, or keeping it from them, even when Dad isn't playing along at all, will that cause damage to them later on? So um, th- these are—this is a very real situation. I have never been asked this question before. I have never thought about it, about the kids. Obviously, there are occasions when a husband and wife are not Christian, and one's become a Christian. Now what? Or they're both Christian, and one leaves their faith. 
not necessarily in marriage, but now what? Okay, well, that's come up. This is unique because the question is, now what with the kids? And the kids are moving along on a good trajectory with their Christian faith in a way that's consistent with their age and everything else. Now what? Okay, so I had to think about this for a while. And I made a few phone calls. I talked to Amy. I talked to um, Tim Barnett. And uh, and just it, it, that their reflections were helpful to me. And you may be in the circumstance I just described. You may be in that circumstance sometime in the future. I don't know. Um, or you may be talking to somebody who's in that situation, and you're not sure how to respond. So let me... Let me talk about three things that came to mind when I uh, thought about this particular challenge, okay? And one of the things that Tim pointed out, and this has to do with the timing, when do you tell your kids about this change in dad's perspective? Tim pointed out that there are all kinds of variables, and a lot depends on the age of the child, on the maturity level of the child— on the temperament of the child. Notice I'm talking about the child. Well, wait a minute. What if there's like three or four? Well, you still have to think about the individual children. Okay? And and what Tim suggested is, when do you tell your kids about sex? So you got four kids, and they have varying ages. When do you tell them about sex? Well, you tell them when they're ready for it. But they're not all ready at the same time. And so you have to choose what seems to be Uh, an appropriate time to tell the individual people, the individual children, about this particular issue when you think they're ready. So there's a point here where you may have to say, I'm going to stagger this. The older kids I'm going to talk to, or we're going to address this with, and then maybe the younger kids will address it with. Okay, so that's a factor. I'm not giving a hard and fast rule here. I'm giving a factor. And and by the way, if the children are young, uh, in preschool or early grammar years, and I'm using grammar here in the trivium um, terminology, so you have grammar, you have logic, and you have rhetoric. Grammar is roughly grammar school, uh, logic is roughly middle school, and the rhetoric stage is roughly high school. Okay, so when you have kids in that gra- those early grammar years, I-, I don't think anything needs to be said. And that's especially if dad is still willing to be supportive of the family's views by going to the church with the rest of the family uh, or carrying on a little bit like that. Because what do kids that young know? They- they're not putting all this stuff together. They're just thinking that we're Christian, we're a family, we go to church, we go to Bible study, we pray before meals, we talk about Jesus or whatever. So I don't think you need to upset the apple cart when the kids are really young like that, my opinion, okay? And I don't think it's going to appear as hypocritical since younger kids are not making those kinds of distinction. Uh, Like I said, going to church is just what they do. Okay, now, when it maybe when it becomes obvious that dad is not participating in the family's spiritual life, if he's not, then this might be the time to begin suggesting some things to the children. And if they're older, uh, if there are older and younger children, then it might be best to communicate to the group 
when the youngest one is old enough to manage it. Then you give it to them all together. Kind of depends on the timing of when this happens. If you have an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 12-year-old, and that's when dad deconverts, well, you might be able to tell them all at the same time. They're probably old enough to be able to manage this, okay? But there are individual issues. There are these kinds of variables, okay? I just don't think there's a hard and fast rule on this. But now it comes to the question of who does the communication? And I do have a strong opinion about this. I think the Christian mom should be the one who communicates this, not the atheist or non-believing dad. There's a couple reasons I suggest that. For one, when mom speaks to the children about where dad is at, she can speak candidly with them. And I don't mean she's going to be nasty or mean or speak ill of dad when he's not there. That's not what I mean. But you can imagine when you're trying to explain something like this to the children and trying to find the right words and whatever, you don't, it's, it adds to the complication if dad, the non-Christian now, is standing there looking over your shoulder while you're trying to explain it. You don't want that distraction. You want to be able to choose the words that you think are appropriate without trying to second-guess Dad's response. That's what I'm getting at, okay? Um, Plus, I think the children, if Mom's doing the explaining without Dad there, the children will likely have the freedom to respond more candidly, too. They, if Dad's there, they may not feel like they can say what they're feeling, and they need to be able to express themselves, it seems to me. Um, so they'll be more free, and that's important. They'll have the freedom to speak their mind and be honest about their feelings. Uh, here's another element, though, and that is that, I mean, just saying here, moms are usually better at being compassionate when talking about sensitive issues like this. All right? And I'm saying that as a guy. I get it. Guys are just a little crustier. They're harder. Even guys that have an ability to be gentle, they're still guys. So a lot of times there's a certain touch or manner that mom brings to the table when there are difficult issues like this that will make it easier for the kids. And they can better affirm uh, with the children the family's love for dad, even if he doesn't agree with them. And this is really important. You, you don't want to create a rift here. Moms need to be able to say, hey, darlings, <laughs> I want you to know that Dad doesn't believe in Jesus or God like we do anymore. Um, he might come to church with us sometimes, or he might um, pray, but his beliefs are different at this point. And that makes us sad. But we're going to love Dad anyway. And we're going to pray for him, okay? And we're going to respect him. He's still dad. He's still the leader of our family. And reaffirming his leadership here is really, really important in my view, okay? And uh, it reminds me actually of a scene of a movie from, um, what, 35 years ago? It was called a Steven Spielberg movie called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Maybe you've seen this. If you haven't, it's really worth seeing. And Richard Dreyfus is one of the main characters. He does a fabulous job. And it's all about aliens, right? And he has a close encounter of the third kind. A close encounter of the third kind is not just when you see, like, 
an alien, but when an alien interacts with you in some fashion, I think the fourth kind is when you're transported away by an alien or whatever. But anyway, so that's what this movie is about, this kind of encounter. And then as a result of this this very close encounter with a, a spaceship, he begins to do weird things. And uh, and he, he's obsessed with this picture of a geographical feature in Montana, as it turns out. But he doesn't know. He's just—and at one point, he's sitting at the table, and he's been acting kind of weird. And his two kids and his wife are aware of this. And he sees his mashed potatoes in front of him, and he starts sculpting the mashed potatoes with his fork into this geographical thing. And everybody's slack-jawed looking at him. What's Dad doing? And then he pauses, he looks up, and he sees him looking at him, and he says, well, I guess Dad has been acting a little strange lately, which is really true, the understatement, right? But then he says this, but I'm still Dad. But I'm still Dad. The fact is, Dads do act strange, lots of times. But that doesn't mean they're no longer Dad, that they no longer have this position of authority. I certainly think it's possible to abrogate that position of authority, but just being weird or having different beliefs doesn't change the role that dad has in the family, God-given, as the head of the family. And so when dad is not following along and sharing the same religious convictions that mom and the children are having, it is really critical that the children understand with mom's support that we still treat dad as dad. He's still dad. And we love him, and we respect him, and we'll pray for him. But insofar as it's consistent with Christ, we're going to obey him. He's still dead. Okay. Um, One other thing, one other reason why I think it's important for moms to do the communication and not the dads about this is that when dads speak, um, their words—I'm chuckling—as a dad— their words often feel more forceful and authoritative or even threatening to the children. Now, that's a plus for dads because mom would say, do this, do that, do this, do that, do that, nothing. Okay, dad. And dad steps in and he says, no fussing, no noise. You do this. Right now, and there's something about having a man exercising his authority in that circumstance that has a greater impact on children than mom trying to do the same thing. Okay, it's not a, it's not a, you know, a gross overgeneralization. Most of you know what I'm talking about. So, given that dynamic, if 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 dad is the one that tells the children that he no longer believes in Jesus and he doesn't even believe in God. You can see how this could have a much more forceful impact on the kids than if mom were to communicate that information, all right? And that's a concern. They don't want—you don't want that information to be perceived as threatening to them, even if it's not, even if he's not trying to be domineering or overwhelming, okay? Um, now, some I talked to said, well, maybe dad really needs to be there to avoid a, uh, driving a wedge in the family or something like that. I, uh, that's not my view. I think it'd be better if mom did this. Um, uh, now, it may be different if all the kids are teenagers, 
That is, they're all in the rhetoric stage. Um, and then, you know, kids in high school, they got opinions. They they like to argue. <laughs> Teenagers, right? And they like to uh, think their idea, idea, pardon me, is is better than somebody else's, even mom and dad's. Don't you know? And so there, it might be uh, appropriate to have a more open discussion. And maybe then dad wants to explain himself. Here's why he's making these moves. But you you don't want to have dad, let me put it this way, you don't want to have the, the children feel a lot of information that they are not capable of dealing with. If you've got kids that have been raised on standard reason, it's probably a little different circumstance for them. But nevertheless, um, you want to—this is one of those variables. If they're teenagers, then that could be more of a, a family discussion, all right, <clears throat> of that between dad and mom or whatever, okay? And if dad raises a bunch of objections, oh, here are the reasons why I don't believe in God. Just keep in mind, and mom, this is something you can coach the kids with, you don't have to answer every challenge right then. Might be good just to take an inventory of dad's reasons without trying to speak to them. If dad has reasons, chances are he's thought them through a little bit. And if he's thought them through a little bit, it's unlikely that any of the kids are going to disabuse him of those ideas. They're going to say, well, what about this? And he said, well, I thought about that. Here it is. So that's probably not going to be good for the kids. Um, just let them know, okay, we, we don't have to answer those challenges right now. It'd be good to find them out, maybe. What are Dad's reasons? Um, and the idea there is that we're just seeking clarity, not agreement. We're not going to try to persuade Dad. We just want to be clear where he's at and why he's there. And of course, that's standard tactical approach. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? You don't need to address the concerns right then. But now that you know what those concerns are, then, Mom, this is an opportunity for you to be with the kids and say, well, Dad thought this, but let me give you a, an answer to that challenge. Let me, let's talk about this and make, make use of our material or, or others who have done a good job, I think, in, uh, in speaking to some of these issues. But it's better that they, that they have some time to debrief on these issues without Dad jumping in on them. And that seems just common sense when you think of the nature of those discussions, all right? Um, let me just see what else I want to say about this. One last thing, I guess. Um, I mentioned there were three things. One is the timing. I talked about that. I said, second thing is, well, who's going to do the communication? I just said a few things about that. Here's a final thing, and this is between mom and dad. Ladies, moms, I think it would be wise to try to broker an agreement with Dad. In other words, you get a commitment from him, the atheist, not to challenge the theism of the children. In other words, you're going to ask them, ask, ask your husband, please don't try to convert our children from their current beliefs. Now, in a way, that might seem a little bit odd. Wait a minute. You're happy to teach them about your beliefs, and I can't try to convert them to my beliefs? That's what you're asking? And my response is, that's exactly what we're asking. And there's a very important reason why. 
Why try to convert the kids to atheism? What is that going to benefit them personally? Even if you think that Christian theism is a false view, it actually serves them well in this time in their life. You know, there are people who are atheists or not religious at all who will say, well, it's good that kids are raised with a religion because they need to have something like that, a worldview, a moral system to follow. They need something like that. Even apart from this conversation, people acknowledge the value and the importance of kids believing something that will be an encouragement to them. What's wrong if they believe your kids growing up, contrary to fact, which is what the atheist thinks is going on, contrary to fact, that there is a God who loves them and will forgive all of their sins and is looking over them in a gracious, loving fashion. And we can turn to him when we're in trouble. Even if that's all false, what harm comes from that? So this is a a pragmatic issue. I don't see any harm that comes from that. But what harm would come from trying to disabuse children of this comforting thought about God by converting them to atheism? Well, this is no good is going to come from that. If they're in high school, that's going to be their choice. I'm not suggesting that what we try to do is, is like, uh, like encourage a lie. But I don't think it's a lie. Mom, you don't think it's a lie. You think it's the truth. This is just a pragmatic concern when, when making the request, please don't try to convert them. Because even if our views are false, it's doing something good for them right now. And taking away that, what you think is a fantasy, isn't going to help them. Not at this stage in their life. Maybe when they're in high school, college, or whatever, but no. So what you're going to do is just try to broker that agreement. No, the husband may not agree, okay? Uh, But, you know, you just got to do the best you can. Keep in mind, too, and this is fair to point out to Dad. Dad, you're the one who changed. We have all been growing up in our family with this set of beliefs that create harmony in our home. We all believe in the same, and then we're acting the same, largely, in the light of our beliefs. Now, you're going the other way. Okay, I get it. And in good conscience, you can't hold this. I get that, too. But you're the one who's changed. Why ask everybody else to change? That really upsets the apple cart. Why ask everyone uh, to, to well, let me, here's a, probably a better way to put it. I think the onus is on him to be considered of and adapt to to the status quo that the children have grown up with and have become accustomed to. Now, like I said, you may not get that agreement, but that to me seems fair and reasonable. All right? Um, nothing's at stake if atheism is true and Christians believe in God, and there are kids who believe in God. But there's a lot at stake if Christianity is true, and kids are believing in atheism. So that's just a uh, cost-benefit analysis. Okay. Well, I hope that helps. Um, And uh, it would be a very sad thing to be in a circumstance like that, but I understand some of you are like that, so not much you can do about it. Let's take a break. We'll get back to some more uh, open mic calls here when we return on Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? 
we release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, here we're going to open mic calls, and boy, am I glad about this. I wish I thought of this idea, which I didn't. Someone else on my team came up with this, and it just gives a whole lot of people more of an opportunity to participate. And especially, I can do that when I'm off schedule doing a show or when um, I have a day like today where just there's not a lot of activity on the boards. I can still keep interacting with you. Again, if you want to do a, a question, uh, that was me banging my mic. What the heck is that? All right, if you want an open mic question to be answered, just dial 857-342-5787, 857-342-5787, or 857-DIAL-STR, or you can go to our homepage, str.org, and under podcasts, live broadcasts, you'll see a place where you can follow prompts and leave your recorded question. So here's a question about, I've not had this question before, but I've had I've thought about things like this. Um, this is Emma uh, Cantwell wants to talk about John the Baptist being the greatest born of woman according to Jesus. Let's hear what you have to say, Emma. Hi, Greg. Uh, my name is Emma. Um, I just had a question regarding Matthew eleven eleven and Luke seven twenty eight, um, where Jesus says, "Among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist." Um, and I think in my New King James, uh, Luke seven twenty eight says, among those born of women, there has not risen a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Um, I understand that John is greater in the sense that he is the only prophet to have ever seen the Christ. Um, but my question is regarding the phrase, among those born of women. So I know that Jesus was truly man and truly God. Um, and obviously, Jesus is the greatest man to have ever lived. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, my question being, since Jesus was born of a woman and John the Baptist was born of a woman, what does Jesus mean when he says, among those born of women, the greatest is John? Mm -hmm. 
Emma, thank you for the question. And um, I think there's a fairly simple answer to this. It is a little speculative, but it makes a lot of sense to me. But let me back up and uh, talk about something else to kind of put this into perspective. I remember reading something in the Gospels, uh, or not the Gospels, the, uh, uh, somewhere in Scripture. And it talked about, I think this may be in the book of Revelation, it could have been in, the, uh, in some other prophetic word that's apocalyptic, and it says something to the effect of, there has never been anything like this before in the world, and there never will be again. Now, that's a paraphrase, and some of you might recall what that particular reference is. I can't remember it. And, I, and I'm thinking, wow, this is it. This is the creme de la creme of, uh, of judgments or whatever. Never before, never will again, etc., etc. And then somebody pointed out to me that this exact same phrase has been used in other times in Scripture. And therefore, if it was used regarding something else in the past— then how could it be used this way in the present? That looks like a contradiction. And what I realized is going on there in that particular case is that what was being used there was a hyperbolic phraseology. Okay? He is the smartest man in the entire world. There's nobody born as smart as this guy, and there never will be anybody as smart as this guy. Now, we might say things like that hyperbolically. That is, we're exaggerating for the sake of effect. We are not really saying anything about the population in the world of smart people. We're using a way of talking about this that people will understand hyperbolically as, wow, this guy's really smart, something like that. And same thing here. If this is a phrase that is actually used in different times to describe a radical judgment, we don't have to take it literally, like there can only be one radical judgment like this, never before, never will again. It wasn't intended that way. Now, what I would like to see sometime is a, is and I've never seen this, and maybe there is such a book, but where there are these these biblical phrases that were understood at the time in a certain way because people said these phrases a lot. And I'm trying to think of something in modern ling- uh, in our modern lingo, so to speak, where, it, where we, we might be doing that. But there's lots of phraseologies that we use, you know. It's that that we don't mean them literally. We're just making a more general point with this phrase or this common phrase. Okay, so I think that's what's going on with never before and never again. I think that's just a way of saying this is really a big deal. And I think people use the phrase with some regularity to make the point that way. It was common in the linguistic habits of the time to use language like that. Okay? I think that might be what's going on here with John the Baptist. That John was the greatest among those born of women. Now, if we take it literally, Jesus is the one who's saying this, and Jesus was born of woman, then John would be greater than Jesus. But it was John himself who said, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. So John then would be disagreeing with Jesus at this point. So uh, Jesus is saying John's better? 
John says, I must decrease, he must increase. Okay, that's how this works. Why? Because he's greater. So then what do we make of this? The next best guess is that it's a, it's a hyperbolic statement. He is a singular individual. <clears throat> was he? Yeah. Was Jesus? Yeah. Was Samuel? Yeah. <laughs> so it might be if that's what this phrase is, how would this phrase is meant to be understood, it could be applied to a non- number of people without suffering contradiction. It wasn't meant to be taken literally. Now, that's the best I can do with it, but it seems to me it makes perfect sense, because why would Jesus say, Jesus himself, the incarnate Son of God, the one who said, before Abraham was, I am, (laughs) right? That guy. Why would he say that John the Baptist is a greater person than he is? He wouldn't say that. He doesn't mean that literally. He is exalting John the Baptist, placing him on a, in a certain sense, on a pedestal in, in the best sense, that this guy is really something else. So don't be judging John because he's in prison now wondering if I'm the Messiah. And that was the occasion, by the way. He's in prison. He's sending his disciples to Jesus a messenger saying, are you the one or should we look for someone else? And so Jesus gives his creds. He said, here's what I'm doing. Boom, 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 boom. And then he says, and blessed is he who does not stumble over me. Now, who might he be speaking of? Who's stumbling right now? Well, John is stumbling. He's doubting. And what Jesus does is gives his creds in terms of the supernatural work he's doing, fulfilling his messianic office as far as he has up to that time. But he's also letting John know, I'm the guy. I'm in charge. What's important here is not your preconceived notions of what I was to provide or bring, but what I'm the one who decides how this goes. And so, in my view, there is a modest chastisement there. Blessed is he who does not stumble over me. I'm the guy. You know that, John. You saw the dove descend. That was the sign the Father gave. You know I'm the guy. I understand you're doubting. But I'm the guy. Don't stumble. Hang in there. And, uh, and, and, and then... Subsequent to that, he talks about John the Baptist, and he extols his virtue. He extols his position in the prophetic order. And then he uses this phrase, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. By the way, it's interesting, he didn't stop there. He says, but the least in the kingdom of heaven— is greater than John. By the way, I just thought of that right now, and that is another indication that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, because those in the kingdom of heaven were all born of women. So how could he be the greatest born of women, but everybody in the kingdom is greater than him, and they're born of women? See the problem. Okay, so I think that's another reason to take this hyperbolically And notice that I'm trying to take the entire account, the whole 
enterprise there with John in prison, asking Jesus, Jesus responding, then speaking to the audience. All of that flows together, and it informs how we're to understand that particular uh, passage. Let's uh, let's uh, jump to another break here real quickly while I look at some of the other questions, and then we'll put some more questions in the queue on open mics. Be back in just a moment. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. All right, we've got a couple of more questions here, and they're three in a row here. They And I think i got 20 minutes—no, I don't want 20 minutes. What do I got? 38, 48, yeah, a little less than 20 minutes. But I got three questions in a row that I think I can get to in that time. Uh, we'll see. But they're at the top of my list, which means these folks have been waiting the longest. And so uh, Evan and Amanda and Katie, I'll do my best. So let's start with Evan. Um, his question uh, is about about gender. Hello, Greg. This is Evan Jennings um, from... Newly minted CIA graduate from last mm. weekend. I just had a challenge question that I thought would be a good tactical question for a parent that's affirming their transgender child. Because every parent seeks the best for their child and wants the best for their child to challenge them to seek that out with a scenario uh, to help them see the faulty logic that they have. Because most parents feel like affirming their child is the best for their child at the time to give them the best opportunity to be happy, healthy, and well. So I would pose this question and say, if you could snap your fingers and you know, wave your magic uh, to pick the best outcome for your child's well-being currently and into the future, which of these three options would you choose? Would you choose that your child has a matching male mind and male body, uh, a matching female mind and female body, or a male mind with a female body or a female mind with a male body, which one would you choose? Knowing that you cannot fully change the male body into a female body and vice versa, and that 
the outcome of a transition will be unnecessary pain and suffering if it is compared to a male mind, male body, or female mind, female body um, matched together where no transition is necessary. Mm. I think that that will be a good challenge to a parent in that the faulty logic behind wanting mm -hmm. to try to align a female mind with a male body or vice versa. Mm -hmm. It's futile and it's not what is best for their child. Mm -hmm. uh, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, thanks for taking the call and can't wait to listen to your answer. Well, Bye -bye. sure. Yeah, sure, Evan. Um, it's a clever question. Okay. I mean, and, and, and a clever, I don't mean cute. I mean, I think this is an appropriate question to ask. Um, <clears throat> there are, in a certain sense, further complications regarding this issue that you're going to run into. Okay. Um, I suspect that if a parent were asked, do you want, do you think it's best for your child to have a gender identity that matches their physical sex, they're going to say yes. Um, but that's not the case. They have a gender identity that's different than their physical sex. Now what? Okay. The difficulty is, is that the culture gives them only one answer. And the answer comes with a threat. The answer is, given the fact that there is a mismatch, which it seems to me is a an affirmation that something's wrong. I don't know why we can't say that, but nobody wants to kind of admit it. This is an affirmation something is wrong. There is a mismatch, and the effort is to try to, to correct the mismatch. Isn't that right? Isn't that what's going on? So when a, a transgender is an attempt to correct the mismatch by either living and acting like the gender you identify with, which is different than the physical sex, or physically in transsexual uh, situations where there's actually operations done on the body that, that, that make the body look like the gender the individual believes they are. <clears throat> and so, uh, I mean, what should go without saying but doesn't enough is that gen sex change operations are impossible. You cannot change the sex of the body. You can, you can alter the physical appearance of the body. I was going to say mutilate, and I think that's an appropriate word. But if you're talking with others who disagree, you might want, not want to use that kind of rhetorically charged language. But that's what it amounts to, mutilation. You can, you can change the physical appearance of certain parts of the body, but you're not going to change the sex. The sex is identified in every single cell of that individual's body, all right? So now, given that there's this problem, which is the best direction to go? And this is the, this is the uh, not just the diagnostic question, but the therapeutic question. If there's a difference between what a person believes about themselves and what their body actually is, should we try to make the, the body look as much like the belief as possible, or should we try to get the belief to conform the way the to the way the body actually is? Now, to me, there's no question. And for years, this has been the approach. The thing that's wrong is not the body. The thing that's wrong is the ideation. 
and things can be done to help correct that. But that is no longer allowed. It isn't allowed in general in culture, and specifically in certain states, including my state, California, it is against the law to counsel a minor in that direction, which is crazy. Um, Well, what's the threat? This is a further complication. The threat goes something like this. Would you have, in the case of, say, a boy who is gender identity, has a gender identity of a girl, and wants to pursue that in various ways, maybe even with an operation? The question is, do you, would you rather have a live girl or a dead boy? A live girl, that is the gender ideation, or a dead boy, the actual sex of the child, but the circumstances are such that the, that the boy, since he's not allowed to pursue his gender identity, takes his own life. If you don't, if you don't let this affirm help this individual move towards their identity, gender identity, they're going to kill themselves. Now, it's true, there's a lot of uh, an unbelievably high rate of suicide in people who have gender dysphoria. But that rate is just as high in Sweden as it is here. Okay? And in Sweden, they're very sanguine about this kind of thing. Why there, when everything's being encouraged? And, and same thing here, largely. It's because the problem is not the problem is in their there is in their psychological development that needs to be addressed. Something is wrong, and making the body look like the gender identity <clears throat> isn't going to solve what's wrong. And by the way, there's another problem this has created with the promotion of all of this transgenderism and the promote the the encouragement of any psychological disruption in a teenage girl's life being attributed to gender dysphoria, you've got massive amounts of people that are suffering or think they're suffering from something they're probably not suffering from. What are they suffering from? Being a teenager. That's what they're suffering from. So um, anyway, there's my thought on that. I think that's helpful. It's a good question to ask, Evan. But, you know, this is what you're going to run up against. You're going to run up against the culture. You're going to run run up against these threats. And you're going to run up against the law, too. So, okay, let's uh, hear what Amanda has to say about fertility drugs. Hi, Greg and Amy. My name is Amanda. And thank you so much for for all the time you take to answer all of our questions. I've I've called a couple of times or left these kinds of messages before. And you've always been such great help. Um, this one's a little personal, although, well, I guess all, all the questions are personal. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been trying to get pregnant for about a year now. Um, my, we have, my husband and I have a little boy who's three and we're trying to have our second and I'm 36. And, uh, although I know God's done far greater wonders and get a 36 year old pregnant, uh, according to, <laughs> to the old Testament, but, um, <laughs> but you know, I am getting older and, and I'm kind of feeling that pressure a little bit more to, uh, to have a second one here. And my doctor has given me the option of going on Clomid and, and 
Amy may know a little bit more about what Clomid does, but it's a, it's a prescription drug that you, that you take and it, 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 uh, has you release two eggs during that cycle. So when you ovulate, you, you really may have, you know, double the odds, I guess, to get pregnant that cycle. Um, and of course it also increases your likelihood of having twins, <clears throat> which would be great as far as I'm concerned, but my husband may have <laughs> different feelings about that. But I, I'm just wondering, you know, I, this is something that is such a, a deeply prayerful subject. You know, I've spent so much time in prayer about this mm. and, um, mm-hmm. and I feel kind of like a, like a weight that this is, this would be wrong to take something like this because I've been trying to really yield to what God's timing is and, um, and his plan for, for bringing new life into the world. And this option seems like I would be kind of usurping that. Um, but I'm wondering if that's just kind of not taking advantage of Western medicine, you know, and kind of the advancements that we have, mm-hmm. um, at our fingertips. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like that old adage where, you know, God keeps sending boats and, and <laughs> I don't know the story. So the man keeps praying to be rescued and God keeps sending boats, you know, uh-huh. and he keeps sending them away. Um, is that the flood, is, that, is it kind of that similar circumstance here? Mm-hmm. Um, I should be grateful that there's a, a path forward, you know, mm-hmm. with a drug like Clomid that someone's created for, for people to have, have children. And I, I can't understand why God wouldn't want me to have more children that we're going to raise in the faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't necessarily align with, <clears throat> with IVF. That's not a route that I, I personally would go down, um, that's a different story, but, but Clomid, um, you know, it's just kind of a question mark for me. So I'm hoping maybe you can help me unpack that a little bit and, um, and thank you again. Hmm. Well, this is a bit of a controversial issue and different people are going to come up with different answers on this. I will say in my circumstances, my wife, uh, and I sought to actually have in vitro fertilization, Okay, and um, that didn't work, and so we ended up adopting embryos and having them implanted, and that didn't work, and we ended up going to uh, to adoption, regular adoption, and we lost a baby in two thousand and two. So we kind of had a baby the regular way, but we were both older, and there was a motility issue on my side, which is a consideration. Sometimes taking Clomad and offering more eggs isn't going to solve the problem if there's a motility issue on the side of the man. So that's something that we need to think about. But uh, in any event, um, I crossed these bridges and came to the conclusion with my wife that it was an ethical option to be able to use some kind of reproductive technology that did not guarantee the death of a child. All right? Sometimes people use reproductive technology, they have in vitro, they have 10 eggs, then they implant them all, and four of them take. Okay, they're playing the numbers. Oh, wow, we got four. Well, I'm not going to carry four. So then they have what's called a selective reduction, and that's nothing more than an abortion. So we realized that we could not use fertility techniques in a way that result that, that we would need to abort a child in order for my wife to carry successfully 
and that's a problem. Clomid isn't in that category. Uh, you might end up with, tw- with twins. I don't know, maybe you get more than that. You might get triplets. But see, you're not going to do selective reductions under those circumstances. And we went beyond Clomid. We went to actual uh, a fertility or a um, em- um, in vitro fertilization and embryo adoption, which is much more aggressive and harder, um, especially uh, the in vitro, much harder on mom. And so I've talked about this before on the air, and I've given advice about this. And in my view, there is no moral um, uh, problems with using in vitro or Clomed or any of these reproductive technologies. Now, if you're a Roman Catholic, there's a line of thinking there that anything like that is a problem. Okay, that's their view. I don't share the view. All right? Um, But part of your concern was, am I interfering with God's timing and plan? You know, a lot of people who haven't gotten pregnant get there and they wonder, okay, let's improve our likelihood. They don't go to to chemistry like you've suggested with Clomid, but they do something else. They get that thermometer out, you know, and they get the calendar out, and they mark the days, and they're looking for the best shot at the best day to have a baby. And nobody seems to object that, well, this is interfering with God's timing, God's plan. Just do whatever, whenever, and if God wants it to happen, he'll make it happen. I don't hold that view. I think we can take initiative <clears throat> to make things happen. And the rhythm method, if you if you will, you're, to get pregnant rather than avoiding pregnancy, you're looking, f- instead of avoiding the most fertile days, you are trying to score on the most fertile days and get pregnant. Well, how you're doing things to increase your chances of getting pregnant. Nothing wrong with that. I don't see that anything is wrong with that. So I don't see why doing it chemically with Clomid would be a problem either. Um, And it's certainly no no less getting in the way of God's timing and plan than than getting the calendar and the thermometer out and then trying to, you know, match the days with your most fertile period of times for, for having sex. So I don't—that's—I think that's just fine. I don't see what the problem is there. Now, if you are—continue to be burdened and you think, this isn't right, well, we got a principle there, and that is, if it violates your conscience, all things considered, you still don't feel right about it, then, then don't do that. If you feel right about the calendar and the thermometer, then do that, you know, if that doesn't bother you. You have to take stock of that. As a moral issue, though, a standalone moral issue— I don't think there are any problems with Clomid, uh, just like there's no problems with <clears throat> hypertension medication, lower your blood pressure, or AFib medication to keep your heart beating properly, or any of a great number of things that we use to improve our health and protect us, and even things that have to do with reproduction. <clears throat> I mean, there are times of the month, there are certain positions that all help—people who are infertile, they know all what I'm talking about, so I don't have to go into detail. All these things that you can do to increase the chances. Well, if you can do all those things to increase the chances, and that's okay, and it's not getting in the way of God, then why can't you do something 
chemical to increase the chances, especially when there's no downside of selective reduction, which is a euphemism for abortion. So, Amanda, I, I'm as to your simple question, is it okay to take fertility drugs like the Clomid that increases the number of eggs that you release on a regular basis to increase your possibility of getting pregnant and having more children? Yes, that's fine. It's okay. Notice that all the chemistry is doing, it's not even making you pregnant. It's just making more eggs available for pregnancy. There's not even any radical manipulation going on like in vitro or anything like that. And it's not as stressful on the woman's body as extracting eggs and then doing in vitro and all of that stuff. That's hard. This isn't. So my opinion is you can move forward on this. And best of luck to you on that one. Pray it out. (laughs) Keep asking God to help. But God's going to help. God's help and timing isn't, I think, limited to uh, our in isn't oh I'm not sure how to put this our inaction isn't guaranteeing that God's plan is going to take place sometimes we need to act and that's part of God's plan maybe that's the best way of putting it thank you Amanda for the question I'm done for the day here Greg Kokel stand a reason give them heaven friends bye bye